0: The conclusion from all this is, that there is in every believer, a sense of the importance of this duty, as a means of both removing and preventing that most dangerous and distressing spiritual disease insensibility. It is easy to apply these remarks to communities. The rules according to which the intercourse between heaven and earth is con. Ducted, are the same, whether we consider man in his individual capacity, or in his social relations. Sin is infinitely hateful to God whether it be committed by an individual, by a nation, or by the church. And God will always express His displeasure at the sin of His people in much the same way. He will withhold from them the light of His countenance, and leave them to walk in darkness. Since the cause of the evil is the same in communities as in individuals, the same remedy must be employed. Many of those instances of covenanting already noticed, took place at a time of great lifelessness in religion. Some who had the eyes to see and the hearts, to feel that it was an evil and a wicked thing, to depart from God, stirred up themselves and others to make a vigorous effort, to regain the divine presence, and by taking hold on God's covenant receive the time of refreshing from His presence. Nations also have their seasons of darkness. Some, indeed, never saw the light, and of course do not know their loss. They know not, neither do they understand, they walk on in darkness. But we speak of nations, that have fallen away from former zeal and attainments. In such cases, there is but little regard for the interests of the church, the glory of God, or the honor of Emmanuel. For this lamentable state of things governing is the cure. By taking hold of God's strength they receive renewed light and life in prosecuting the ends for which God has instituted civil rule. They shall be a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. Isaiah 19, 24, 25 4. A Time of Adversity The Jews were in a very afflicted condition, when they covenanted in the days of Nehemiah. And this they assigned as the reason of engaging in that transaction. The king's whom thou hast set over us because of our sins, have dominion over our bodies, and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Nehemiah 9, 38 God employs afflictions as means to reclaim his backsliding children. If they break my statutes, and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod, and their iniquity with stripes. Psalm 89, 31, 32. By chastisement he brings back to the shepherd and bishop of souls, those who had gone astray. And in this way he addresses communities as well as individuals. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name, hear the rod and who hath appointed it. Micah 6, 9. It is indeed a lamentable fact, that when the Lord's hand is lifted up men will not see. The people turn not to him that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. For the iniquity of his covetousness was above, and I smote him, I hid me and was rough, and he went on frowardly in the way of his heart. When this is the case with the church her candlestick is near, to be removed out of its place. If less severe judgments do not awake her from her spiritual slumber, God will add to them. And if ye will not be reformed by me, by these things, But will walk contrary unto me, then wilt I also walk contrary unto you, and will punish you yet seven times for your sins. Leviticus 26, 23, 24 We learn from prophecy that the church has her sorest trials yet to endure. There shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, since there was a nation even to that same time. Daniel 12, 1 For there shall be great tribulation, Such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Matthew 24, 21 Sore suffering is the consequence of great sinning. Iniquity will abound, and the love of many will wax cold. The last apostasy is the greatest. When the Son of Man cometh will he find faith on the earth. He will avenge the quarrel of his covenant, and call to a renewal of its obligation. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words, and turn to the Lord say unto him, Take away all iniquity, and receive us graciously so will we render the calves of our lips. Hosea 14, 1, 2 When God afflicts his church, he calls her to consider her ways. A retrospect of her course will bring to her view numerous instances of unfaithfulness to her Lord. She will see that as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so she has departed by breaking her covenant engagements, and she will acknowledge that God has afflicted her in truth and in faithfulness. Through the divine blessing on her afflictions, she will return to him that smiteth her. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us, he hath smitten and he will bind us up. Hosea 6, 1 Turning to the Lord is done by covenanting. A sinner in coming to Christ lays hold on him by faith and covenants to be his. And in all his afterlife, when through the infirmities of his flesh, and the power of temptation, he is led away from God, he recovers himself by renewing his personal covenant. He comes to Christ confesses his backsliding bewails the corruptions of his heart and again promises, and vows fidelity to his Savior and Lord. Nor is it otherwise with the church the spouse of Christ. When she departs from him, he follows her with the most tender and affectionate addresses, and when these fail he employs other means to reclaim her. Remember from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do thy first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. This is God's language to the church in every afflictive dispensation. And her answer to such calls should be, Behold we come unto thee for thou art the Lord our God. The instruments of the church's affliction are either open enemies or false friends. The former attack her by violence the latter harm her by treachery. When the sword of persecution is drawn against her, the condition of her faithful children is peculiarly hard. Men of whom the world is not worthy are forced to wander in deserts and in mountains, and in den and in eaves of the earth, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. This has often been her lot, and however much she can complain of the wickedness and cruelty of men, she never can charge her Lord with injustice. She is then called to remember her unfaithfulness to former engagements, and with weeping and mourning to join herself to the Lord in a perpetual covenant. At other times, by the agency of faults, as well as by the imperfection of true friends. She is left to mourn over declension from former attainment's schism in the body of Christ, strife and contention within her walls, and a great decay of vital godliness among her members. For all these things she should weep sore, and apply the sovereign remedy of divine prescription, vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Circumstances like these gave occasion for the National Covenant of Scotland. An attack on the Reformation cause in that kingdom was meditated and put in train by the Popish King of France. A knowledge of this, and especially of the plan adopted to render the design effectual, determined the Reformers to bind their whole nation to the Protestant interest, and prepare a test, that would prevent any foreign Popish emissary, from meddling with the affairs of the nation. This was done by swearing the National Covenant, By doing so, they gave evidence of both their piety and wisdom their sense of the duty they owed to God, and their knowledge of the true way, to seek deliverance in the hour of danger. In their distress they called on God, and He delivered them. The point under consideration is strengthened by the fact, that men in affliction are disposed to make promises of amending their ways. The profligate, on a bed of sickness, promises that if his life be spared, he will abandon his vicious course. The tendency of affliction is to produce such solemn resolutions. It is true they are often rashly made, and afterwards but little regarded, but the fact mentioned proves that there is within us a principle favorable to carbonating, which afflictions tend to develop. The abuse of it by those whose sorrow is the sorrow of this world, is proof of its existence, and ought to be improved by taking hold of God's covenant of grace, and binding our souls to follow Him through evil and through good report. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised, turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Jeremiah 31, 18 When he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and inquired early after God, and they remembered that God was their rock, and the high God their Redeemer. Psalm 78:34, 35 5 When there is important work to be done, This appears to have been one reason for Israel's renewing their covenant immediately before they crossed the Jordan. They were about to take possession of the land of promise, and exterminate the Canaanites, whom God had devoted to destruction. For a work of such magnitude it behooved them to make due preparation. The land of Canaan was not given them, because they were more in number or mightier than any other nation for they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but Thy right hand, and thine arm, because thou hadst a favor unto them. Psalm 44, 3 On the arm of the Lord alone was their dependence. It was by taking hold of God's strength, that they became strong in the Lord, and in the power of His might. By faith they escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, Waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Hebrews 11, 35. Faith was exercised and strengthened by the renewal of their covenant. The tribes of Israel in that transaction professed anew their sole dependence on the God of armies, and engaged again to be faithful soldiers of the captain of salvation. Confiding in their covenant God, they were certain of success. They knew that through God they would push down their enemies. It was by covenanting that our fathers in Scotland carried forward the work of reformation. By the national covenant, near the close of the 16th century, they laid Popery prostrate. By the solemn league and covenant, the Presbyterians in the three kingdoms were enabled successfully, to resist prelatic encroachments and civil tyranny. By it they were enabled to achieve the second reformation, and furnish to the church a confession of faith, catechisms, larger, and shorter, form of church government, and directory for worship, which have descended to our day as her subordinate standards. Thus, while our fathers were employing means for the prosecution of the reformed religion in Scotland, and the extension of it in England and Ireland, they were also setting up landmarks, by which the location and limits of the city of God will be known at the dawn of the millennial day. It is by renewing their covenant engagements that that the witnesses of Jesus will be enabled to stand in the time of trial. In the last fierce contest with the powers of darkness, their place will be the hottest of the battle. The beast, that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them. For such a conflict their hearts need to be filled with courage, and their arms girded with strength. By repeating their pledge of fidelity to the captain of the Lord's hosts, they secure anew the panoply of heaven and grasp more firmly the sword of the Spirit, and use more skillfully the shield of faith. They thus put on the breastplate of righteousness, and cover their heads with the helmet of salvation. Thus armed they go forth to the conflict, and in the day of battle and of war they are made more than conquerors through him that loved them. Yea, though in the last struggle they fall, they shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth them with his hand. It is indeed given them on behalf of Christ who suffered for his sake, but their sufferings will redound to the glory of God, and put to shame and confusion their enemies. When the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife having made herself ready, shall give herself away to him in a perpetual covenant, she shall be seen coming up out of the wilderness, the place of her exile for one thousand two hundred sixty years, leaning on her beloved. And then she will urge by all the eloquence of love, her claims to the affections of her husband's heart, and to the protection of his almighty arm. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm for love is strong as death. Cantillations 8, 6. Let us turn aside, and hear the pleadings of the purest and strongest love. O thou whom I so loveth, I have been long deprived of the sense of thy loving kindness, which is better than life. I have been driven from the society of men, and banished to the waste howling wilderness. Now I ask to be indelibly impressed on thy heart, to have a lasting place in thy affections, and to enjoy sensible manifestations of thy love. Place me as a signet on thy hand, that I may be secure from all the attacks of hell and of earth combined for my destruction. I take thee as my husband, and ask to be refreshed by thy love and supported by thy power through the arduous work still before me. I confess that as a wife treacherously departed from her husband, so have I dealt treacherously with thee. Behold I come to thee, for thou art the Lord my God. The children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping they shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion, with their faces thitherward, saying, Come. And let us join ourselves, to the Lord in a perpetual covenant, that shall not be forgotten. 3. Application 1. The great mass of the human family entirely neglect this duty. All unrenewed men are in an uncovenanted state. They are far from God and far from holiness. Slaves of sin, and bond slaves of Satan, they will not serve the Lord. In their madness they embrace their chains and refuse to enjoy the liberty with which Christ makes his people free. They hate God and his Son, and they will not have him to reign over them. It is indeed the strangest thing imaginable, that rational beings should reject a proposal so reasonable, as that which God makes in this covenant of grace come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord, if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. And yet such is the stupidity of man by nature. That they prefer the slavery of Satan to the glorious liberty of the children of God. This opposition to entering into covenant with God is as real and strong in communities as in individuals. When wicked men can give a character to society, it will be adverse to the authority of God. A family composed of irreligious persons will be an irreligious family. If the members have not individually taken hold of God's covenant for their personal salvation, it is not to be expected that as a family they will dedicate themselves to him, who is the God of the families of Israel. When the majority of a nation are infidels, we cannot expect to see the nation anything but infidel in its national capacity. The mass must partake of that which characterizes its constituent parts. Society will be no better in any of its forms than the individuals of which it is composed. The history of nations furnishes ample evidence of their unwillingness, to be in a state of voluntary subjection to the prince of the kings of the earth. Constitutions are framed, and laws enacted, defining the mutual duties of rulers and subjects, without any recognition of the allegiance nations owe to him by whom kings reign and princes decree justice. Of this the history of our own country furnishes a most remarkable and humiliating instance. Was not the expectation most reasonable, matination wish, by the blessing of the God of armies had gained its independence, would acknowledge his authority, and bind itself to obey his laws, especially when it is considered, that all the knowledge of the principles of civil liberty which its members possessed, they owed to a covenanted ancestry. The disappointment of these just expectations can be ascribed only to the fact that, that the revolutionary patriots had degenerated far from the high and noble attainments of the covenanted martyrs. The things that are gods, the glory due to his name they overlooked, intent only on breaking the yoke of oppression under which they had groaned. They regarded not, they heard not the high command of the ancient of days, kiss ye the son, lest he be angry. It is still more strange to see any part of the Church of Christ indifferent to the claims of her head and lord. This is a lamentation, and shall be for a lamentation. Alas, that while the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, to break their bands and cast away their cords, the bride, the lamb's wife should, by her silence, connive at the dishonor done to her husband, and even in some instances make a feeble attempt, to justify this practical rebellion among his subjects. This is a shameful abandonment of Reformation attainment's base recreancy to the cause of Emmanuel. The covenants were the glory of the church and nation of Scotland. And how can they be said to go forth by the footsteps of the flock, who have declined from the attainments, renounced the covenants, and contradicted the testimony of the cloud of witnesses? It is not the way to follow those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, to refuse the obligation of the oaths, by which they bound their souls in allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there can be no doubt, that all the schisms that disfigure the body mystical of Christ the errors, which march and deform the pillar and the ground of truth, and the insensibility which, with the weight of a great millstone, crushes down all the spiritual energies of professors are the legitimate consequences of the abandonment of Reformation attainments the violation of covenant engagements. Nor are we to expect to see visible unity restored to the church, until filled with the spirit, that actuated our martyred fathers, all the people of God shall join themselves to Him in a covenant, that shall not be forgotten. The watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing for they shall see eye to eye, when the Lord shall bring again Zion. See appendix, note one, two. Covenant breaking is exceedingly displeasing to God. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Heb 38. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuleth or addeth thereto. Galatians 3:15. Covenant breaking is spiritual adultery. It is a violation of the marriage contract made in the day of espousals. I swear unto thee, and entered into covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becomest mine. Ezekiel 16:8. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and playedst the harlot. Verse 15. And I will judge thee as women that break wedlock, and I will give thee blood and fury and jealousy. Verse 38. God avenged the quarrel of his covenant on his people in all the calamities which they experienced from their entrance into Canaan till the death of Christ. And the descendants of Abraham are feeling even now, that it is an evil and bitter thing, that they have forsaken the covenant, which the Lord God made with their fathers. From their sufferings, let individuals, families, nations, and churches, learn how dangerous it is to forsake the guide of their youth, and forget the covenant of their God. They who do so, need not think to escape. The Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Children are in baptism given away to the Lord. Parents acting as their representatives engage for them, that they will, when they arrive at years of maturity, take hold formally of God's covenant. This is a subject for the serious consideration of those baptized youth who are slow to make a public profession of God's name and cause. It is not a matter left for their choice, whether or not they will be the Lord's. The act dedicating them to Him, has already been performed, and it is at the peril of bringing on themselves the judgment of the covenant breaker, if they refuse to give themselves to God by personal dedication. Let everyone, who has been baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, say, Both by profession and practice, I am the Lord's, and let him subscribe with his hand to the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. The British nation is eminently guilty in this matter. In the covenants, national and solemn league, they swore allegiance to the Lord God Omnipotent. But their covenants were most wantonly violated, not by gradual steps of declension, but by a national de their obligation. This great evil was not redressed by the Revolution of 1688. The present British throne is based on the violation of these national engagements. Erastianism, essential to the crown, is in direct opposition to those memorable deeds, and the infamous act of recitery stands unrepealed on the British statute book. Verily, a severe reckoning awaits that covenant breaking nation. It is time for those churches that have been long indifferent to their duty in this respect, to awake. Will they too slumber till the day of wrath overtakes them. What signifies their apparent zeal, their prosperity, their number and their influence, so long as they remain unfaithful to him whom they claim as their Lord? And is it not unfaithfulness not only, to reject the obligations of the covenants of former times, and refuse to engage to be the Lord's? but also to countenance the nations of the earth in their impious determination not to do homage to him, that is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Such churches may well be called Ichabod. Full is written upon them. That the Spirit of God is departing from them is but too evident from their unfaithfulness in preaching, their laxness in discipline, and the low state of personal and family religion among their members. Return, ye backsliding children and I will heal your backslidings. 3. The signs of the times indicate that governing is a seasonable duty. Every close and intelligent observer will submit that this is an eventful age. The whole world is in a state of excitement and activity. Many are running to and fro, and knowledge is increased. The rights of men are more investigated and better understood now than at any former time. And why should not the rights of God be pressed on the attention of men, as an important element in genuine reformation? This, it behooves the witnesses to do. They are required to sustain by faithful and clear testimony the right of the governor among the nations to universal subjection and homage. The duty of men in every relation of life to enter into covenant with God, must be exhibited in principle, and carried out in practice, as the only sure foundation for the superstructure of moral and religious reformation. All the efforts unconnected with this, to render society better, are but to erect an edifice on the sand. It may rise rapidly, and dazzle with its splendor and flatter with its apparent stability, but it cannot be permanent, because it is not based on a render. Surely, then, no philanthropist knowing this, can look on with indifference, when men with the best design are spending their strength in vain, and they're labored for that which will not profit. In these days covenanters should be active, and in order, that they may induce others to engage in the work of covenanting, let them first give their own selves to the Lord. If we have been successful in ascertaining the circumstances, which require the performance of this duty, it will be easy to demonstrate that it is now seasonable. Should it be essayed, when the obligation of covenants is but little regarded? Surely that is eminently the case in our day. The covenanted British owls are living in a total disregard of their covenant obligations. The churches there are deeply guilty in this matter. They support the crown with all its Erastianism contrary to their most solemn engagements. To this the reformed Presbyterian church is the only exception. The yoke of patronage bound by civil authority on the neck of the Presbyterian church in Scotland is indeed felt to be galling. But the tardy measures adopted to throw it off, prove that she has not yet returned to her first love. In our own land the descendants of covenanted fathers, who succeeded in bringing the land of their nativity into covenant with God, refused to acknowledge the Lord, as the God of the American nation. The church here is, to a great extent, insensible to covenant obligation. We ourselves are not guiltless. While we contend for the binding obligation of the covenants of our fathers, we do not prize, and improve as we should this invaluable legacy. Surely it is time to be awake and alive to this important work. The evidence, that this is an insensible age is painfully abundant. There is but little life among professors of religion. Iniquity abounds, and the love of many waxes cold. God is also afflicting his church. He has sent on her brokenness in judgment. Divisions destroy her visible unity. She has made a reproach to her neighbors, a scorn and a derision to them that are round about her. Moreover there is now important work to be done. Everything indicates our nearness to the time of the end. When the potsherds are preparing to dash against one another, the church is in the most trying condition. She can identify herself with neither party in the conflict between the ten horns and their great whore that siteth upon many waters. She has to guard the interests and honor of her husband, and this will expose her to peculiar danger. While they raise the standard and unfurl the flag of war, she is called on to display a banner for truth. On her banner the inscription must be, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, and under this she must fight the battles of the Lord against the mighty. Victory is certain. The Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called, and chosen, and faithful. 4. This duty should be observed in the proper manner. This consideration is of the utmost importance. For the one of attending to it many a good work has been marred. The divine law is the only rule for observing divine institutions, in the Bible we have both precept and approved example, to direct us in covenanting. Confession of sin, and especially of the sins of covenant breaking should always accompany the renewal of our obligations. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. Jeremiah 3, 13, 14 It was so at the renewal of the covenant in the reign of Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29 of Josiah, 2 Kings 23 and in the days of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9. There should also be sorrow for sin. This is inseparable from sincere confession. Fasting should also be observed. In that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping, and to mourning, and to baldness, and to girding with sock cloth. Isaiah 22, 12. Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. Joel 2, 12. Moreover, the matter of the covenant should be right. It should not only contain nothing wrong, but it should bind to everything right. And in the renewal of covenants, there should be no abridgment of former obligations. To this there is in our day a great tendency. The opposition is not so much to covenanting as it is to the covenants of our fathers, and to the permanence of their obligation. The Church never will renew her covenants aright until she embraces in her obligation all the attainments sworn to in the Covenants National, and Solemn League. This was done in the renovation at Ochensoa in Scotland, and at Middle Octora in North America. These specifications are necessary, in addition to the obligation to observe the whole divine law, that the covenanters may testify their belief that these covenants were entered into in the true spirit of the institution of covenanting, and thus contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. Whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Philippians 3, 16. 5. There is much to encourage in attempting this duty. While the signs of the times call to this work, they also pretty plainly indicate that it will be crowned with success. See appendix, note too it is true that the devil has great wrath, and he will vent it against those who are in covenant with God. Against no other divine institution has he and his followers from the beginning evinced more deadly hatred, because there is none else the observance, of which more promotes holiness of heart and life. Our hopes of success arise not from any expectation of a cessation of the opposition against those who are in covenant with God. No such cessation so long as their adversary the devil is permitted as a roaring lion to go about, seeking whom he may devour, should be either expected or desired. Our hope is in our covenant God. By a remarkable dispensation of divine providence, the minds of men seem to be undergoing a process of preparation for the duty of covenanting. There is a general tendency towards concentrated action. We can view this in no other light than a common operation of the Spirit of God, to prepare men for a renunciation of their covenant with death, and their agreement with hell, to join themselves to the Lord. Infidelity is indeed making use of this tendency of our age, and is thereby rapidly extending its dominion. And what has it not perverted to the same end? But a still nearer approximation to covenanting is found in the modern practice of signing pledges, by which the signers bind themselves to one another, to promote with all their ability some cause in which they are embarked. This has also been misemployed. Hitherto there has been little in common between pledge signing and covenanting, but the mere mode of operation. Still, when the time comes for publicly swearing, and signing, and sealing the covenants, it will not be a new thing under the sun for a great multitude, to listen to the addresses of public speakers and at the same time subscribe with their hand a document containing an important obligation. The prevalence of a spirit of investigation and inquiry furnishes also ground of encouragement in this duty. Our age is characterized by a fondness for novelty. And there can be no doubt, that this is the result of a want of confidence in opinions long held, and fondly cherished. Old systems of philosophy have been exploded, and those which have been introduced in their place are undergoing constant change and sometimes improvement. Moral maxims, and political dogmas are closely investigated, and many of them of long-standing, are found utterly erroneous. This often suggests the question, whether men ought not to improve in the science of religion, as well as in politics and in morals. And the answer is given in the affirmative by all those who forget that the church has derived her views of religion from the Bible, a source very different from, that whence the men of the world draw their notions of politics and morality. The effect of this is the former is immutable, the latter is subject to constant change. The human mind wearied of such uncertainties excites itself to remedy the evil. Hence the disposition to invent, and the fondness for novelty. Nor do men stop with making discoveries in things, that pertain to this life it were well if they would. Emboldened by their success in these things, they go farther, and rashly lay their hands on the ark of God. New measures are introduced into the worship of God. And all this tends to feed, not to satiate a craving appetite for novelty. As these are the natural workings of the mental constitution, which God has given us, it might be well to endeavor to turn them to some good account. If men love novelty, and will be satisfied with nothing else, why not direct their attention to the duty of governmenting? Here their desire could be lawfully and profitably gratified. And this would be introducing a divine institution into the place occupied by human invention. The result could not, but be highly beneficial to the interests of pure and undefiled religion. But the sure ground of encouragement is, that governing is a duty. If God calls us to it we may trust Him with the result. He never said to any of the seed of Jacob, Seek my face in vain. Let us trust in him, and go forward. What, although it may expose us to the reproach of mother's children. What, although it may require us to make painful sacrifices. What, although it may provoke the men of this world to unsheath against us the sword of persecution. Are these things to be put into the scale? and be made to outweigh the command of God the glory of the Messiah and the obligation of the church. No let Zion's children be joyful in their king. Let them bow and pay to the Lord their God. They should not be the last to bring the king of Israel back. While they testify for the royal claims of Emmanuel let them demonstrate the reality of their profession, by swearing allegiance to him. Awake ye sleeping virgins behold the bridegroom cometh. Go ye forth to meet him. Trim your lamps and supply your vessels with oil. Let your loins be dirted and your light burning. In a little time you shall realize the frontest desire of your hearts. The crown on Emmanuel's head shall flourish. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and Amen. Appendix Note 1 The author of the preceding discourse has, in common with his brethren, had to bear some reproach for declining to take a part in the efforts which some are now making to restore visible unity to the church. To prevent a misunderstanding of the views of covenaners on this point, he would declare that they earnestly desire to see an end put to ecclesiastical strife and division. For the peace of Zion they pray, and to produce it they are employing the only legitimate means. A union based on either a profession of error, or a relinquishment of truth, all admit cannot be permanent. And yet this is the fact in relation to the plan proposed and recommended, by many professed friends of union. Mutual compromise is the means a meeting place, on which all might agree is supposed might be found, and about those things on which there is a diversity of opinion, let them agree to differ. Against this plan there are insuperable objections but without waiting to present them, as they have been often presented, the writer would propose a plan, the only one, as he believes to attain the desired end, the church is usually called Presbyterian, all claim to be the descendants of the Church of Scotland. All whether Reformed Presbyterian, Associate, Associate Reformed, or Presbyterian claim her as their mother, and boast of the relationship. It is also agreed by all, that the Church of Scotland lost part of her independence, purity, and glory, by the revolution settlement of 1688, which laid on her neck the yoke of Erastian supremacy. Between the years 1638 and 1649, the Reformation was at its height, and the Church was in her purest state. Why then not base the union of the Church now on the same foundation, on which she was then united? All the divisions, which have been made in the Church since that time, have been the effects of leaving that foundation, all the attempts made to restore unity have been failures. And why? Was it not because the builders deserted the old, and attempted to build on a new foundation? Were it merely as a matter of experiment, it should be tried. The most skillful physician, when all his efforts to remove the disease are baffled, will not hesitate to try some very simple nastrum, especially if he is satisfied, that in a similar ease it has been successful. And why do spiritual physicians adhere so obstinately to their own prescriptions, which have in every instance failed? Strange that the inquiry has never been made. What united the Presbyterians in England, Scotland, and Ireland, about the middle of the 17th century, in opposition to episcopacy, backed by the throne? Or, if the inquiry has been made, it is stranger still, that those who are laboring now for union have not learned an important practical lesson from the answer. But it is no matter of experiment. Experience, observation, reason, and scripture, give their joint testimony to the truth, that the church cannot be permanently united at the expense of yielding a single truth, for which she has ever contended. What then is to be done? Just let all return to the point from which they diverged. Let each church retrace her steps of defection from reformation attainments. Let the mutilations of the Westminster Confession of Faith by some, and misrepresentations of it by others, be thrown away, and let all agree to take that system of truth, in connection with the catechism's, larger, and shorter, form of church government, directory, for public worship, and etc. as the standards of the church. And let them bind themselves in solemn covenant engagement, to maintain all the truth therein contained, and to testify against all contrary error in a word let the covenants sworn by our common mother the church of scotland in her purest times be renewed divested of their local peculiarities retaining all their moral principles let this be done or let those who refuse to do it act consistently and disclaim all connection with her as their mother but it may be retorted if your plan is the right one why have you not long ere now succeeded i reply the question is not What plan is most likely to receive the most general concurrence of the churches? In this respect yours has the decided advantage. But the question is what plan, if accomplished, would be the fairest to be permanent? And here ours has the preference. You can by opposing us, prevent the execution of our plans, and you do oppose us not, because you think a union in our way would not be permanent, but because it cannot be effected, That is, you make the result of your opposition the reason of it. For, if all would cease to oppose, and on the other hand unite with us, the point is gained. But we oppose you, because a union on your terms, we believe, would be at the expense of truth. It would not be permanent, and, of course, all the labor would be lost. May the time soon come, when the watchmen shall see eye to eye, and, when there shall be one Lord, and his name one. No, to the witnesses of Christ should be men, that have understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. The good tree bringeth forth its fruit in season. In maintaining the testimony of Jesus, prominence should always be given to the present truth. The experienced commander will direct his strongest force to the point, where the enemy is making his fiercest attack. The same course must be pursued by the soldiers of Christ in their conflict with the principalities and powers of darkness. In every age of the Church there have been some leading principles, for which she has successively contended and suffered. In general, the whole force of the kingdom of darkness has been directed against the Lord Jesus Christ, in the offices, which He executes as our Redeemer. And for these, in regular succession the Church has borne a faithful and honorable testimony. Paganism in the primitive ages of the New Testament church assailed the Redeemer's prophetic character. The light wish, by his word and spirit, he diffused throughout the Roman Empire, roused the hostility of the votaries and victims of pagan superstition. Intense successive persecutions the witnesses maintained in their life, and sealed by their death, their testimony to the genuineness of that religion, which the Lord Jesus Christ revealed, in opposition to heathen superstition and idolatry. For the priestly office of Christ, witness was born against the presumptuous claims of papal Rome. The doctrine for which the witnesses contended was, that the sinner is justified only by the righteousness of Christ. For their faithfulness they were put to death by the man of sin, and by their death they sealed their testimony to the priestly office of the one mediator between God and men. The kingly office of Christ is twofold, he is the head of the church, and he is the head of all principality and power. King of saints, and prince of the kings of the earth. The former is denied by episcopalians, who give ecclesiastical supremacy to an earthly monarch. Against this unhallowed infringement on the rights of Messiah, the witnesses loudly protested in the seventeenth century, and again sealed their sincerity with their blood, under the tyrannical domination of Charles II and his successor James. The authority of Christ as governor among the nations remains yet to be witnessed for by the blood of the martyrs. This is eminently the present truth. The principles of government are now undergoing a severe examination. A great deal wrong has, been discovered in the old systems, while there is but little indication, that those who have made the discovery, know how to remedy the evil. Those who clamor most for liberty, are as unmindful of the headship of Christ over the nations, as the votaries of despotism. It is a mere struggle on the one hand, to retain power on the other, to enjoy right, while neither party recognizes the obligation to honor the Son and whether the sovereignty be claimed by an individual, or by the people, both claims equally conflict with his rights. It shall be no more, until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. Ezekiel 21, 27. For this important truth the witnesses should now testify. Their voice has indeed been heard, but let it sound above the increasing uproar about the things of men, calling loudly and distinctly render unto God, the things that are God's. An important duty devolves on us in these times of agitation, and let us see that we be faithful. While we are not to be unmindful of the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophet, and as the priest, and as head of the church, let us see that we give special attention to his claims, as prince of the kings of the earth. Above all, let us beware of wasting our time, exhausting our strength, and weakening our mutual affection. My contentions in relation to matters in no way connected with the present truth. Now is the time for the witnesses to be united. Let us, in the strength of that grace which is sufficient for us, lift up our hands to the Most High God, in the renovation of our solemn covenant engagements. This will give our testimony efficiency, our God will bless us, and all the earth shall fear Him.